Hey, everybody. We hope you're enjoying uh, some episodes from the Classical Classroom Vault right now. We are currently working on a new season of exciting shows, and we'll be back with new episodes very, very soon. Meanwhile, if you are just dying for some fresh new Classical Classroom content, you can now follow us on Tumblr and Twitter. Just uh, look up Classical Classroom on either one of those, and you should be able to find us. If you want to follow me directly, I'm CC Dacia on Twitter. That's my handle. All right, sit back, relax, and enjoy another episode from the Classical Classroom Vault. My name is Daisha Clay. I'm the audio librarian here at Classical 91.7. While I'm a real librarian, I have a deep, dark secret. I know very little about classical music. I grew up listening to rock, and I know something about jazz. But when it comes to classical... The thing is, I want to learn. And as it turns out, I work with people who know a lot about classical music. Every week on this show, one of my coworkers will give me a homework assignment, a piece of classical music they think I should know, and then we'll discuss it. Come learn with me in the classical classroom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the classical classroom. I'm Daisha Clay, and today my teacher is going to be the inimitable Amy Bishop, who is the host of Classical 91.7's Saturday Morning Music, but more importantly, is an expert contra dancer, (laughs) and, as it turns out, has a cat who has the same name as mine. No. Yes. Really? Yeah. Gus. Yeah. The best I know. the best cat name. I think ever. we're kindred spirits. I think you know. I think so. <laughs> I can moonwalk. You can contradance. <laughs> a lot I mean, of parallels. A lot of parallels. So so Amy, what are you gonna be teaching me about today? Well, I chose the subject of uh, tone poems or some people call them symphonic poems. There's a couple of minor differences in the definitions, but the terms are basically interchangeable. I love tone poems. Just the sound tone poem, it just sounds so charming. Yeah. Um, it's all about telling a story or painting a picture. And I love music that sort of evokes these images and tells stories of some kind. Or there's a composer who says, I have this vision in my head. And I want to make that into a, a sort of a musical painting. And some of my favorite pieces are tone poems. Let me ask you a, a potentially really stupid question. But, but like when, okay, so so these three pieces that we're we're looking into today, they're all tone poems. But does a composer sit down and say to him or herself? I am going to write a tone poem. <laughs> and then there's there are like, you know, these these sort of prescribed, you know, rules that that you follow to to make a piece that's a, a tone poem or is it kind of like um is it a bit looser than that where it just sort of happens? Cuz I mean, if you're going right. to if you're going to write a haiku, you're like, I'm going to write a haiku. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a little of both. I think that the 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 term didn't even come about till like the mid 19th century. And the pioneer was Franz Liszt. I don't think he was saying, I'm going to write a tone poem. I think maybe 
he wrote these pieces and then said, I don't know if it was him that coined the term or if he was like, hey, these are, I'm going to call them tone poems. And then people sort of followed suit after that. Yeah. Um, but they're usually, you know, one single movement. It almost makes me think that maybe the composer is sitting down to say, I'm going to write a tone poem because it's always self-contained in one movement. Oh, interesting. Okay. So so it is like it's not something that that is spanning a bunch of different movements. Not it, really. It is a movement. Right. And and, okay. and the three pieces that you had me listen to before we met today. I don't know if you want to introduce them because sure. I will butcher the names. <laughs> yeah. So why don't, what okay. do you say? Um, I chose, well, my favorite piece is Smetna's The Moldau. Oh, and so good. Yeah, it was great. And that's a tone poem. And he um, he wrote six that make up a, a, a larger work called Mavlast or My Country or My Homeland. Uh-huh. And um, they're all tone poems, but The Moldau is definitely the most um, popular of mm-hmm. all six of those. And again, it, it's sort of telling a story, evoking images of his native Bohemia with mm-hmm. the river that runs through, well, what's now the Czech Republic and through Prague. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, um, that piece, uh, with most of the pieces that, that people have given me as, as homework assignments for the classical classroom... I honestly haven't really liked many of them until after our conversations, you know, like, (laughs) it's kind of like reading a a classic book, you know, Mm -hmm. where, you know, like reading Dostoevsky or something like that. And you don't really understand what you're reading, what you're, you know, until somebody tells you, oh, this this is the context, Mm -hmm. this is what's happening. And so, but with the Smetna, I just... And instantly loved it. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is, and I think it must be because my people personally are rumored to be from Bohemia. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So are mine. What? Yes. No. Yes. That's why, that's why it's one of my favorite pieces because my, um, my grandmother on my dad's side was full-blooded Czech, like from the old country. Yeah. And, um, so I've, I've always sort of had this, you know, connection with, with Bohemian and Czech composers. Uh-huh. And I've, I've been to Prague a couple of times. And so after, I, the the piece was was a, a favorite of mine, you know, before I went to Prague. But once I went there and I I saw the scenery and I saw the river going through the city, the music just had a whole new meaning for me. Yeah, yeah. This it, for me, it it was really just uh, totally, you know, turned the music on and instantly loved it. I love that that refrain. Well, here's the here's the really fascinating part about Smetna. You know, usually when people talk about deaf composers, the first name that comes to mind is Beethoven. Mm-hmm. Smetna also lost his hearing during wow. his lifetime as a composer, and he wrote Mavlast, all six of these tone poems after he was stone deaf. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so the Moldau was as the uh, German word for the river, but in Czech, it's Vlatava. And I'll say that because I'm going to quote what Smetna said in his own words to describe the piece. So when I refer to the Vlatava, it's the Moldau. He wrote that the composition describes the course of the Vlatava, starting from the two small springs, the cold and warm Vlatava, 
to the unification of both streams into a single current, the course of the Vltava through woods and meadows, through landscapes where a farmer's wedding is celebrated, the round dance of the mermaids in the night's moonshine. On the nearby rocks loom proud castles, palaces, and ruins aloft. The Vltava swirls into St. John's Rapids, then it widens and flows toward Prague, past the Vichyrad, and then majestically vanishes into the distance, ending at the Elbe. The Elbe is another river that yeah. goes through there. So I wanted to set up that portrait so that you can imagine the course of the river as it winds through the Bohemian woods and meadows. Well, um, when, did, when did he write this piece? In 1874. Okay, okay. That gives, that gives me a little bit of context. An idea. Yeah. yeah. So should we listen? Yeah, let's give it a listen. So this is sort of the introduction where he's talking about the two small springs mm-hmm. who are meeting up together to create one river. And there it is, the unification of both streams into a single current that he was talking about. Love that. I, I read this book one time by a music historian named Bill Parker, and he um, was describing the, uh, the the work. He said, "If ever there was music with sweep to it, this would be it. Yeah. It's sweeping and swirling." Definitely. I mean, the way that he's able to musically capture the course of a river mm-hmm. with all of these th- this m- music just has all of these moving parts right. it's so cool that's why it's a tone poem is it <laughs> it's okay. it's it's musically poetic that's why i describe it yeah but it 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 does so without being cheesy <laughs> you, you know like there's there's something sort of genuine about this music. Right. I, don't know, I don't know how to... I can't put my finger on it. Well, I think that, you know, he's he's writing music about his homeland, mm-hmm. and he is passionate. He was one of the nationalist composers, one of the Czech nationalists, yeah. which nationalism was a big thing at that time, and, and sort of like, you know, creating patriotism mm-hmm. among, among the people. And so when you're passionate about something... Um, it's it's easy to show it. Yeah, I guess it comes across. Mm-hmm. So where are we? Where are we? At what point in the river? We are winding through the woods and meadows okay. at the moment. And we are about to come upon the farmer's wedding. So if you can imagine a traditional Czech wedding and people in their bohemian clothes. Uh-huh. Outdoors. Lots of, like, ribbons and flowers and things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's very festive, folksy kind of sound to it. Czech folk music. Yeah. 
This sounds nothing like the polka my grandpa made me listen to. <laughs> you know, I bet you'd be surprised. In a kind of does. It's got the. I mean, it's got some bounciness yeah, to it. Right. But not the umpa. White. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the umpa is key. Now I believe we're moving on to the round dance of the mermaids in the night's moonshine. Think of these these women of the waters. These majestic mermaid-like creatures in the moonlight. Clearly he's being figurative. They don't have... You know, mermaids <laughs> no. in the oh, Czech Republic. I, yeah. What's he, talk, what's he I, talking about? I should have mentioned that, yes, he he is depicting the countryside here, but also the history and the legends of Bohemia oh, all within this work. So, cool. so it's sort of a combination of um, real and imagined. Or fantasy, mm-hmm. sort of. And, and like, or like... Uh, some of the old legends, legends. some of the old Czech legends. Yeah. Folk tales. legends about like women in waters across Europe that mm-hmm. are all basically the same like um, Fair Melusina by Mendelssohn is is another one of those those pieces that um, is inspired by this beautiful woman who lives in the waters and yeah. I think sort of like sirens in a way the okay. same general idea it's like every culture has its own version mm-hmm were they like in, like in the Odyssey? The sirens are they? You know they they seem to be lovely, but actually it's just a trap. And they you know the I, sailors approach them and and then they die on the rocks. <laughs> right? You know? Is it like that? They're pretty to look at. Yeah. Um, I I I think that for the most part, yeah, they are you know these beautiful women who attract men, but then yeah. there's not a good outcome. They they lure unsuspecting. <laughs> drunk men into the waters and then they die <laughs> but i don't know if that's i really don't think that's the case for the um the mermaids the czech mermaids okay. in this music <laughs> they're not they're not i think killers. they're nice <laughs> nice sirens <laughs> they're the kind of girls you can bring home to mom <laughs> don't put that in there <laughs> Ooh, are we getting to the falls now yeah, this is um, swirling into the St. John's Rapids, um, where it widens and flows toward Prague. There's this castle, 
if you've seen pictures of Prague, there's this huge castle that is high up on a hill that overlooks the city. It's called Vichyrad. And so when you're moving into Prague, that's what you're seeing on the horizon, sort of, because it's the tallest thing there. So that is coming into view once you get through these rapids. Okay. This is my, my favorite part. So we've moved past the rapids, and where are we going now? We're getting into Prague, okay. and you can see that castle up on the hill yeah. as you move in. Sounds very majestic. Mm-hmm. flowing but it does it does yeah it's those strings mm-hmm. well, we're going back to the streams right the castle has vanished in uh-huh. off in the distance and we have just connected with the other river that's called the oh, Elba, okay. the Elba. I don't know why that part makes me laugh every time I listen to this. It, it reminds me, uh, for some reason, of, of like Looney Tunes. It was kind of kind of like you just didn't know what to do at the end of this beautiful piece. It's like it's so amazing, it's so majestic, and then he's like, "Well, I don't know where to go now. How about dum dum?" <laughs> well, you know, I I mean, I I, I know of some of the things that were in Spentna's mind when he wrote that, but I don't know about that. I can't. <laughs> I can't confirm. <laughs> well, so, okay, so that, that's an example of a tome poem, or what, what was the other word for it? A uh, symphonic poem. Okay. You could, yeah, like tone poem's way better, you're right. I like tone poem, yeah. yeah. I mean, like I said, there are um, a few differences in the definition, but these days, for the sake of simplicity, usually they're interchangeable. Yeah, yeah. So you have a couple of other pieces I do. that are examples of of the tome poem as well. What's what's the next piece? Um, the next piece is um, Richard Strauss's Death and Transfiguration, and it's a pretty like dark subject. Yeah. And it's basically about a man who's coming to terms with his death on his deathbed. And Strauss was twenty five when he wrote this. What? <laughs> yeah, wow. yeah. So you you know you're you're thinking like, gosh, you're you're a very 
you're a very deep 25-year-old. You're already yeah. thinking about um, your mortality. what your last years are going to be like. <laughs> yeah. yeah, when you're just in the you know, first 25 years of your life. So um, what I'm going to do is just read what sort of story he was trying to tell in this piece. Because it is a picture, but in this case, I think it's more of a story. I mean, this maybe it's a little of both, but by telling the story, maybe you're you're seeing the picture. <laughs> but um, okay, in Richard Strauss's words for death and transfiguration, he said, "The sick man lies in bed asleep, breathing heavily and irregularly. Agreeable dreams charm a smile on his features." In spite of his suffering, his sleep becomes lighter. He wakens. Once again, he is racked by terrible pain. His limbs shake with fever. As the attack draws to a close and the pain subsides, he reflects on his past life. His childhood passes before him. His youth with its striving, its passions. And then, while the pain resumes... The fruit of his path through life appears to him. The idea, the ideal, which he has tried to realize, to represent in his art, but which he has been unable to perfect because it was not for any human being to perfect it. The hour of death approaches. The soul leaves the body in order to find perfected in the most glorious form in the eternal cosmos, that which he could not fulfill here on Earth. Damn, Ricard. <laughs> that is some intense, <laughs> intense it, Isn't that deep for a 25-year-old? Tell me wow. about it. So, um, so yeah, these are these, these sweet reminiscences mm. of, of childhood. If you can imagine a man in his his dimly lit room, yeah. you hear that. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be. Some people say it's a clock ticking, and others say it's a heartbeat. Huh. It's like it sounds to me sort of like he's on the event horizon of, of death. You know, mm-hmm. like the area on a black hole where. You're, where you can't escape anymore. You're you're on the way, but you're not quite in the black hole yet. And in just a minute, the mood will lighten a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that's whenever he starts having these f- fond memories of childhood. Mm-hmm. Not quite yet, though. He's still moaning and sighing right now. I was really struck when you were reading what Strauss had to say about this piece um, by how how many uh, movements I guess he believed that there were in the death process. Like mm-hmm. his, it's a very um, intricate imagining of. I mean, I'm not sure if at that point in his life he had watched anyone die or anything. You know, if he, yeah, that's a good maybe he point. was drawing on something. Yeah, no, because I mean, it sounds like it's informed. Like he's, uh, yeah, I, I can't imagine a 25 year old man just sort of, you know, pulling that out of his out of his baton <laughs> out of his baton. 
Hi. Good thing I've caught you there, huh? <laughs> Whoa. Right? <laughs> so that, that literally that was, blew me back. I, it, it's supposed to be this sudden um, attack of pain all of a sudden. Like he's having these sweet dreams of childhood and then all of a sudden, bam, here comes some more pain and he's writhing and, and uncomfortable again. But then that'll eventually pass. And then he goes into this um, long process of of again thinking back to his entire life and he thinks about you know this this passionate love affair and his uh, his his childhood memories that takes up the majority of the piece um this part of the music not to derail you but the this part of the music really reminded me of for some reason the music from, um, of all things, Rebel Without a Cause. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I haven't seen it, so I don't know. Oh, it's it, the, uh, this man, I think his name was uh, Leonard Rosen was the uh, composer uh-huh. uh, who wrote the soundtrack for that movie. And, you know, Rebel Without a Cause is very, you know, it's very melodramatic. And, and so is the music that goes along with it. And this... Reminds me so much of like the fight scene. There's like a knife fight okay, scene. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. I could see that. Yeah. It, it's funny, like how many different contrasts there are. Because here, it, it's just obviously it's a, it's a man who's in serious pain. But then toward the end, you know, it, it's called death and transfiguration. Yeah. So at the end, it's this very um just beautiful sort of ethereal ending that mm-hmm. Strauss was trying to evoke with the soul leaving the body and mm-hmm. going to the afterworld what's kind of interesting to me is that he sees death and transfiguration as one thing you mm-hmm. know you were saying that a tone mm-hmm. poem is something that's that's self-contained, mm-hmm. and so right. You know, that's a good point. Yeah, like death and what happens after the point of dying. Like, there's no point in this music where I can tell where there's a there's a marker that death mm-hmm. has happened. Right. There's just a sort of passing into death, and then there's the being transfigured. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Sort of a different way to look at at the end of a life. The other really neat thing about this is that when he was on his deathbed, when Richard Strauss was on his deathbed many years later, he told his daughter-in-law, it's amazing, Alice. It's just as I wrote it in Death and Transfiguration. Holy moly. Wow, that was, uh, so that's it. It just sort of, there's no Looney Tunes ending to this one. No, it actually there's no boom, okay. boom, no, no. <laughs> so yeah, Death and Transfiguration uh, by Richard Strauss. Should we go ahead and move on to our, our final one? Yes, let's move on to 
Gershwin's An American in Paris. Right. So tone poems, like I said, sort of came into prominence in the mid-19th century. And then they kind of went on a decline by by the early 20th century, like around the 1920s. Mm. And they the popularity just declined. I don't know why, but I guess because there were other big things going on in music at that time. And um, But one of the later tone poems... Um, was by George Gershwin, and it was semi-autobiographical, or actually it was autobiographical, and it's called An American in Paris, and the title kind of explains it all. He was an American in Paris in the 1920s, which was such a cool time to be in Paris, because right? he had all of these creative people who were there, like Hemingway was there, and Picasso was there, and it was just this great scene. Just like the movie. You, you know the latest Woody Allen movie? Uh, Midnight in Paris, that time period, the, the you know, you've got your Hemingway, uh-huh. you've got your Gertrude Stein, you've got right. your other people who, yeah. are, who are living large. A lot, of, um, a lot of people who weren't French who were in France. Yeah, uh, yeah it was such a, a cool time to be there. Gershwin was there as well. Um, and this was sort of like a souvenir. He was, he was inspired by the sights and the sounds of Paris that he wanted to write something to, I guess, in a way to remember it. Mm -hmm. So again, I feel like the best way to describe the piece of music is to use the words from the composer and, um, that, you know, that makes it simpler (laughs) or easier for me. So I, I do have, um, what how Gershwin described an American in Paris. He said, My purpose here is to portray the impression of an American visitor in Paris as he strolls about the city and listens to various street noises and absorbs the French atmosphere. When the tone poem moves into the blues, our American friend has succumbed to a spasm of homesickness. But nostalgia is not a fatal disease. The American visitor, once again, is an alert spectator of Parisian life, and the street noises and French atmosphere are triumphant. And you can hear this sort of, like, happy, jaunting um, American strolling. It's supposed to sound like, um, you know, Gershwin is is walking along and then taking in all of the sights and sounds of the capital. What's that? What's that? (laughs) I'm so happy to be in Paris. Bonjour. Uh Okay, so do you hear what sounds like car horns? Yeah. So, he was trying to be, like, so true to the, the sounds of Paris that Gershwin actually went and got... Parisian taxi horns and brought them back for um, the performance when he came back to the United States because he he wanted to sound as real as possible so he had all these taxi horns that he brought back and they play they used the taxi horns he put it in the score (laughs) insert taxi horn here is that what the sheet music says yeah yeah. You know, there's there are these French taxis whizzing by and people on bicycles and probably, you know, probably mimes or something. <laughs> Definitely there are mimes. You can hear them. <laughs> Girls with a bicycle and a basket with a baguette in it and mm-hmm. some fresh flowers. Yeah, baguettes everywhere. Yeah. I've been to Paris and there were indeed baguettes everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> 
I saw no mimes, though. No? No. So somewhere along the way, though, this American in Paris, he's all excited about what he's seeing, but then suddenly he gets a little bout of homesickness. And you can hear that whenever Gershwin sort of goes into this, like, low-down, bluesy kind of sound. That's whenever he sort of, you know, gets a little twinge of Mm -hmm. homesickness, but then he gets over it in a little bit. Yeah. So the mood changes a little bit. Yeah, kind of brings it down. Yeah. Aw, shucks. I kind of miss home. I miss mom. (laughs) I miss mom's cooking. So, do you think he went to blues because the blues were coming out of the U.S.? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's America's music, and I think it sort of took him back a little bit and made him think, yeah, home. But, in Gershwin's word, like I said... Nostalgia is not a fatal disease. The American visitor, once again, is an alert spectator of Parisian life. So this is obviously the part where he's no longer homesick. Yeah, (laughs) clearly, he's gotten over it. But wait a minute, I'm in Paris! Right. There are baguettes and mimes! (laughs) And beautiful French women! (laughs) Probably what happened. Mm-hmm. His head was turning. I know. Quickly forgot. Yeah. <laughs> Jazz hands. <laughs> and as Gershwin awesome. said, the street noises and French atmosphere are triumphant. So I tried to, you know, end things on a lighter note because we, you know, I didn't <laughs> want to end with just death and transfiguration. Thank well, that's you. all, folks. <laughs> boom, boom. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for not for not ending with that. I didn't want to end with a downer. So, yeah. And plus, I wanted to sort of give an idea of the diversity that mm-hmm. is among the tone poems, even though they span less than a century, really. So like from the 1840s to the 1920s, more or less, huh. that there's such a range of subjects and such a range of sounds among the three that I chose, and there are, like I said, so many others. Yeah, I think these these three did a really good job of of showing the kind of a, a whole picture of mm-hmm. what a tone poem can be. Like it, it could be, you know, showing your majestic homeland. It can be showing, you know, something uh, about a moment in life, or or you know, about an experience traveling. I mean, it can be uh, like a poem mm-hmm. about about anything yeah. that, that you like, and. Uh, and like I said, I love music that tells a story or or yeah. that is like the composer painting mm-hmm. a picture, but instead of using a paintbrush, she's using yeah. music. Well, I like how you said it at first. That's kind of how I've, I've, I thought about all three of these pieces was without words, you're going along on this on this journey with the composer and you're just sort of propelled through it from beginning to end and experiencing almost almost a narrative mm-hmm. that's so cool yeah well amy thank you so much for showing this my to me pleasure. Yeah, this my so pleasure my pleasure and i got to learn things about you too i got to learn that we yeah, you have a cat that has the same name as me 
Yeah. We both have Czech ancestry. And I can break dance and you can contra, contra dance. dance. So, so I, I feel like this has been a learning experience <laughs> all around. I, I agree. <laughs> I agree. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. Yeah, this has been great. Everybody, thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time.